It was the time for the Passover feast. And this feast was a reminder to the Jewish people of what God had done for their ancestors generations and generations before when he took them as they were slaves in a foreign land inside of Egypt and delivered them out of foreign occupation and gave them a pathway to the promised land. But God's salvation was not on the minds of the chief priests and religious leaders. You see, these most recent conflicts with Jesus and these last things that he'd been saying about the destruction of the temple and the resurrection of the dead, it had finally reached the peak, and they didn't want him around anymore. And so they began to conspire in the shadows to figure out a way to have him not just eliminated from the scene, but to be put to death. And not only were these types of maniacal plans underway, but something spiritual was taking place as well. In particular, with one of the disciples, a man named Judas. Someone who had walked with Christ throughout his ministry. Someone who had shared meals with Jesus. Who had been taught the secrets of the kingdom of God. And had seen Jesus do incredible signs and wonders. This man became so overcome by evil and by his own sin and by temptation. That he decided that he too was going to go and meet with the chief priests and the officers. And that he was going to betray Jesus. And so for a small sum of money, he told them that he would help them find a way to arrest Jesus without a crowd around. And after they made that agreement, Judas left, and he went and he found Jesus and the rest of the disciples who were gathered together in a room about to take the Passover meal. And that's exactly what they did. But this time, this meal that had been observed year after year, generation after generation, dating all the way back to these first people who left Egypt, Jesus would sit down and he would take this meal with his disciples and he would change it forever. And so today, as we continue our look through the teachings of Christ in the book of Luke, we're going to see Jesus teach about his sacrifice and the salvation that can be obtained through it, through a meal. And we're going to see G how Jesus took that Passover meal and turned it into what we now observe called communion, where we get to dine with Christ and commune with our King and be reminded of the sacrifice through which he gave us salvation. And so we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 22, and we're going to read the first 23 verses. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
and he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your grace and for your mercy. And God, we just ask that as we think about the meaning of this table, that you would help us to understand the magnitude of what you've done for us. That God, you would help us to realize the sacrifice that Jesus had to endure in order to bring salvation into the world. And Father, I pray that as we come to the table, as we do every month, that each time that we come to the table would be the f- like the first time we came to the table and we would be strengthened and overwhelmed by feelings of humility because all of this was done for us, but also that we would be strengthened with joy knowing that because Christ has died and Christ has risen, that Christ will come again and there will be a day when we no longer eat this meal because we will be with Jesus forever. But until that day, help this to strengthen our hearts and our minds to go out and to do the work that you've called us to do. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. It's hard to imagine the intimate moments of Jesus' life. Because the way that the Gospels are written, they're not biographies. In the sense, they're not designed to tell us about all the details of Jesus' childhood and who he was in the quiet moments. They're there to teach us about the Gospel of Jesus about the teachings of Christ and the miracles that proved who he was, and then ultimately his death and his resurrection that brought salvation into the world. And so we don't get a lot of the things behind the scenes when Jesus would be talking with his disciples and friends and just going about his normal business and normal everyday activities. But we're invited into one of those intimate moments here in Luke chapter 22. And this really genuinely feels like a calm before the storm. I can't imagine what was going through Jesus' mind as he prepares to eat this Passover meal, knowing what's about to take place, that he's about to be betrayed, that he is about to be tried, that he's about to endure incredible physical pain, and then he's going to suffer and die. And we know that this was something that grieved Jesus because we see through the Gospels that before this takes place, Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow and mourning because of everything that he's about to endure. And then there's all of the spiritual things going on around as we see this evil enter into one of his own disciples. 
and these evil men conspiring to have him put to death. And so all of this is going on all around this room, and yet Jesus sits here ready to eat with his disciples. And with all of that taking place at this moment, what he decided to do was to recline at the table. And this feels like such a peaceful scene in the midst of such chaos. And it's hard to imagine this story without picturing the the Da Vinci painting, The Last Supper. And that feels very formal because they're all facing the same way, which is odd in in that sense because it'd be very hard to talk to each other. But they're all sitting at this long table and they're all on one side of the table and there's some things bustling around, but they're all sitting upright and it's a very formal looking picture. But that's not the picture that Luke paints for us. It says, when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and his apostles were with them. And then for a moment, it just felt incredibly normal. They would have sang through the Psalms, and they would have prayed together, and they were getting ready to eat together, and they were just spending this moment in peaceful fellowship. And I love the first thing Jesus says at the table. In verse 15, it said, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Knowing all that was coming, Jesus' desire, in fact, his earnest or his passionate desire was to sit at this table and to be with his disciples and to be with his friends. Even knowing all that he was about to endure, all he wanted to do was commune with his people. And this is precisely why we call it communion. Because just like it's true for the disciples now 2,000 years ago, when they sat at that table with Jesus, they were eating with Christ. They were sharing this intimate meal in the presence of Jesus, and he eagerly desired to be there with them and to have fellowship with his people. And the same thing is true every time Christians come to the communion table. You see, this is much more than just a religious action are part of our routine. But when we come to the table, we are coming in the presence of Christ to fellowship with Jesus. And that when we take the bread and when we take the cup, we are reminded that not only is Christ with us at the table, but he is with us and goes for us everywhere that we go. And he delights in being present in our lives. We're reminded that we are one with Christ. And that coming to the table, we are able to participate in his work. That when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are participating in the sacrifice of Jesus. And we get to earn the reward that Jesus gave through his work on the cross. And that's the first real change we see between Passover and communion. Because in the Passover meal, the people, the Hebrew people in slavery in Egypt, they were preparing for God to do a work. They were eating this meal because it was going to be the last thing they had to eat before God delivers them out of Egypt and on the road towards the promised land. But while the the people in Egypt were preparing for God's salvation, when we come to the communion table, we are participating in God's salvation. And we are with Christ at the table, and we are in Christ. And we get the opportunity to come into the presence of our Savior and dine with a king, and it gives him great pleasure, and it should do the same for us. 
And so when we come to the communion table, we shouldn't come with long faces or heavy hearts, even though it reminds us of our sin and of our guilt. Even more than that, it reminds us that Christ has paid the price so that we could not only be saved by Jesus, but that we could be friends and family with Jesus and that he loves us intimately and compassionately. And so when we come to the table, we should come with joy. And like Jesus, we should eagerly desire and earnestly desire to come to the table. And when we come to the table, we don't go alone. Because the other side of this is not only did Jesus eat this meal with his disciples, but they shared this meal with one another. Not only was it communion with the king, but it was communal in the sense that these men were now eating this meal together. And in verse 17, Jesus took the cup, And then he took the bread and he says, divide this among yourselves. He says, pass this around. Share this with one another. And what we see is this picture of 12 men who all came from very different backgrounds, from very different places and different worldviews, who were brought together simply by their desire to follow after Jesus. Now these 12 men were united by one cup and by one bread. And we're reminded here that the communion meal is designed to bring people together. It's designed to be something that unites us. And Paul teaches us this truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. As he talks about the communion meal, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ reminding us again about this communing with Jesus? And then in verse 17, he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And Paul teaches us there, just like we see on display in Luke 22, that when people come to the table with Jesus, that we don't come to the table as a bunch of individuals, but we come to the table as one body, and we are spiritually united in Christ, and that we are brothers and sisters, and that we belong together. And one of my favorite things to see when we take this communion meal every month is all of the different hands that reach to the table. Hands that come from different places, that look different, that have different backgrounds and different stories. They all come and they all take the same cup and they all come and they all take the same bread. And when we do that, we are made one in Christ. And so just like we should come to the table with joy, because we get to eat that with Jesus, we should also come to the table in awe because of what we see as we get to eat this meal together. And begin to look at those faces and those hands that reach to the communion table and to begin to see them differently. Not as strangers or even as friends, but as family that you have been eternally united with in Christ. And to recognize what an amazing, miraculous thing that that is. And so communion allows us to dine with our King. It allows us to be made one in Christ and to bring people together who may have no business eating at the same table, yet Jesus brings us together and makes us family. But then there's also another amazing thing that communion does. Because maybe the most striking passage in this entire chapter is when Jesus says in verse 21, but behold, 
the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus doesn't give any exclusions when he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. And even as his hand rests on the very same hand that just received a monetary payment to betray him and have him turned over to the officials and put to death, Jesus says, even as I sit here looking in the face of my betrayer, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. And what's so beautiful about the communion meal is the restoration power that it has. You see, the church is the only place, and I do mean only, where people can bitterly disagree on so many things, come from so many different places and have so many different things going on in their lives, but then they can come to the same table. And the communion table is designed to be a place of reconciliation. And so if we ever have anything going on between anyone inside the church or out, it's our duty to recognize that Jesus died to reconcile us with God. And so we are supposed to be ambassadors of that reconciliation, which means when we taste that bread and taste that cup, we cannot help but think about what God did to restore our relationship with him. And so we need to be the kind of people who seek to restore the broken relationships in our lives as well. Because if Jesus can sit down and eat this meal with the man who is turning him over to his enemies to be killed, then we can come to this table and seek reconciliation with people who have hurt us or caused our relationships to be broken as well. We need to learn to marvel at the communal nature of the communion meal, the meal that brings broken relationships back together. The meal that brings people from all walks of life under the banner of Christ to eat one bread and one cup. The meal that allows broken sinners to come into the presence of a holy God and eat a meal with the King of kings and Lord of lords and be restored and renewed by his sacrifice. This should be something that no matter how many times we come to the table should cause our jaws to drop and our spirits to be broken and our hearts to be filled with joy because we get to participate in such a beautiful thing that God has given us. So Jesus sits down at this meal with his disciples, and then he took the bread, and he broke it, and he gave thanks. I don't know that I've ever thought about exactly the symbolism of that moment, but Jesus takes this bread that he's about to tell his disciples represents his body that's going to be broken. Knowing everything that he was going to have to endure physically, Jesus broke that bread and could just, you can feel the reality of his sacrifice. And he does that, and then he gives thanks to God. And he is thankful for the sacrifice that he is about to to endure. This is how Jesus felt about the sacrifice that he was about to make. We see that echoed in his prayer before Jesus goes to the cross as he asks God, if there is any other way that we can do this, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. 
And so Jesus certainly didn't want to have to endure all that he was going to have to endure, but he knew that this was the plan before the foundations of the world and how God was going to restore not only his people, but the entire world back to himself. And so Jesus, knowing everything he was going to have to suffer, gave thanks to God because salvation was about to come into the world. How could he do that? Why would Jesus give thanks in such a difficult time? Well, he answers that question. He says, it broke it, and he gave thanks for the bread, and he says, this is my body, which is given for you. You see, the reason Jesus could give thanks is because he knew that everything that he was about to endure was the only way that these disciples and every other hand that would ever reach to that communion table would be able to be brought in to the kingdom of God. The only way that they could ever eat at his table, the only way that he could have eternal fellowship with his people was to go to the cross and to do what he had to do. And so because of that, because Jesus loves us that much, even though he was going to endure hardships we could not imagine, he saw the other side of that suffering, and for that he gave thanks. The king who invites us to his table does that through his own sacrifice for us, and it makes him grateful. And so when we take the bread, we are receiving a gift from God, a costly gift from God. In fact, one that cost God everything as he gave his one and only son for that. And all that Jesus asks in return here is that we remember. And so because of that, we are called to remember to remember that Christ has done this for us. And then when we feel the bread break in our hands and in our teeth, we remember that Christ was broken for us. The King of kings and Lord of lords was broken for us, and it caused him to be thankful. And so when we come to the table, we should be thankful as well. Praying prayers to God giving thanks to the God who loved us enough to give everything for us. And then he takes the cup. And it says in verse 20, Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he gave it to them, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant of my blood. And I love that language there. As Jesus takes this cup, he says, he doesn't just say this cup is for you, or this cup from which you drink is for you. But he says, this cup that is poured out for you. And it's a foreshadowing of what Paul teaches us in Philippians chapter 2. When he said that Jesus, even though he was in the very nature equal to God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He became nothing. He emptied himself. He poured himself out for us. You see, Jesus didn't come just to give a little bit of himself. He didn't come just to give some of himself, but he came to give all of himself for us. And by bleeding and dying on that cross, breathing out his last breath, Jesus made to us a promise. No, Jesus made to us a covenant. And when God makes a covenant, God keeps his covenant. I love the story, and I know I reference it a lot, but bear with me. When God makes his promise, his covenant to Abraham, 
They go through all the normal ritual that was involved in, in two parties making a covenant. And so God causes Abraham to fall asleep, and he gives him this incredible vision of a covenant ceremony. And what would often happen is these two parties that were involved in making this covenant would offer a sacrifice. And they would cut the animal in half, and they would split the animal open, and the two of them would walk through the animal together, saying that if I break my side of the covenant, then let what happened to this animal happen to me. Basically, they were making a covenant saying, if I break this covenant, you can put me to death. But when God made that covenant with Abraham, the two of them didn't walk through together, but God passed through alone. And he says, this covenant is not about you keeping it with me. I am going to keep this promise no matter what. And if I break it, then I'll no longer be God. Then I'm worthy of the same fate of this animal. But you can rest assured that because of who I am, I will never break this covenant with you. And in the same way, Jesus, as he makes this new covenant with his people, goes through the sacrifice alone reminding us and assuring us that it is not based on what we can do for God to hold on to that salvation, but God is going to cling to that salvation for us because he has earned it by himself and alone, and nothing can take those who belong to Christ out of the Father's hand. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant, and he is the fullness of the new. We have nothing to bring to the table because he has prepared it for us. And so when we come to the table, we are receiving that promise. We are receiving that covenant. We are walking up to the sacrifice that Jesus walked through alone. And so when you take the cup, remember that if you've put your faith in Jesus, you didn't do anything to earn it, and you can't do anything to lose it. This covenant was established and given to you by God through the sacrifice of Jesus. And this cup that we drink is the poured out blood of Christ washing over us, forgiving us of our sins, past, present, and future. And there is no wrong, there is no sin, there is no brokenness that can overtake the brokenness that Jesus endured on the cross for us. And so not only do we come thankful to the table, but we come strengthened and impassioned, knowing that we can live for Christ and run in God's grace, doing what God has called us to do, not allowing guilt or shame or sin or brokenness to slow us down because Jesus has won the victory for us. In verse 16 and 18, Jesus reminds us that this meal is not just a temporal thing. It's not just about the here and now. In verse 16, Jesus says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then in verse 18, he says, For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he reminds us here in that simple phrase that this communion meal is not simply about remembering, that it's not simply about looking back, but it's also about looking forward. And this hope that we have in Christ that one day, just like the sacrifices ended as Jesus offered himself as the ultimate Passover lamb on the cross so that we no longer have to offer the blood of bulls and goats because Christ is sufficient once and for all for our salvation. There will be a day when we don't have to eat this meal anymore because we won't be looking forward any longer to what Christ is going to do when he returns and makes all things right and all things new. We will be seated, as the John tells us in Revelation, at the wedding feast of the King. 
and that we will be with Christ forever. And we'll have no need to remember because we will be there with Christ and we will know fully and we will be known fully and we will be forever. And that's the same message of the season of Advent. And that's why it's so incredibly fitting that all these things converged on this day. Because the season of Advent is a cyclical thing. It's both the end of the church year and the beginning. It calls us to look back at the time before the birth of Christ. As people were desperately waiting for God to bring the Messiah into the world and to bring salvation into the world, they were waiting and longing and crying out for God to deliver them. And then in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. But also in the same way, we know that while Christ began the work of the kingdom, while Christ began the work of salvation, that he has a plan to finish it as well. And so in the Advent season, we're also looking forward to Christ's second Advent or his second coming when he comes not as a baby in a manger, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords to judge the nations and to set the world the way that it should be. And so it's in that tension that we find ourselves coming to the table, seeing this Advent wreath, taking the bread and the cup, remembering the sacrifice of Christ, being strengthened by this meal that is very small materially, but very large spiritually. And much like the people of the Hebrews living in Egypt, as they ate that Passover meal ready to go and be strengthened to, to take the next leg of their journey, we come to this table to be spiritually strengthened, to continue doing the work of loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, of sharing the gospel and reaching out to those who are in need and those who are broken and doing the work of Christ until the day that he comes again and we can lay down our tools and enter into his rest. And so when you come to the table, Come with all that on your plate. You can come to the table with your burdens and your brokenness and your sin and your shame and your guilt, and you can lay that down and you can exchange it for the body and the blood of Christ. The bread that's broken for us and the cup that is poured out for us and this reminder that is more than a symbol. It's a spiritual gift that God has given us. It reminds us that when we taste this gift that we have been made new, and that Christ has saved us once and for all and has a plan to restore us from the inside out. And so in just a moment, we're going to have a time where if you've put your faith in Christ, that you can come to the table. And you can take a piece of bread and you can take a cup and return to your seat and we'll all eat this meal together. Again, reminding ourselves that we are all in this together. But before we do that, let's just take a moment in the quiet and prepare our hearts. Paul says that we have the responsibility to examine ourselves and make sure that we take this meal in the right way, to make sure that our hearts and minds are focused. And so if there's things that we need to confess, we can confess. If there's things that we just need to ask God for strength, we can do that. But we just need to pray and prepare ourselves to come to the table. And then I'll pray and bless the table and then invite you to come. And as you come, come with joy, with thanksgiving, with unbelievable gratitude, knowing that God has set us free by the work of Christ on the cross. So let's just take a moment in silent prayer and prepare ourselves to come 
sanctification.